Welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am your host, Bridget Connery, coming to you from the dialed studio at Hula on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. Today we bring you part two in our three-part series with Vermont Cannabis Control Board Compliance Director, Carrie Jagir. We discussed last month's consumer protection warning, his team's near-term priorities, and the potential benefits of an in-house analytical lab to audit the cannabis supply chain. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before we move into our conversation with Carrie Jagir, we thought we'd give you a quick update on the Vermont market. This past Monday, the CCB held its monthly board meeting. Let's take a look at some of the numbers they shared regarding licensing, industry workforce, product registration, and enforcement actions. As of February 23rd, 645 licenses have been issued. 299 of these are employee ID cards, which leaves 346 as licensed businesses. On Monday, the CCB approved 13 new licenses and its first renewal, a mixed cultivation in Chelsea, Vermont. Of the 13 new licenses, six are retail. That puts the total number of licensed retail stores in the state at 47. Bringing it home to Burlington, we now have five fully licensed stores and six applications in the queue including our own. Last month, we signed a lease at 163 Cherry Street, the former Lucky Next Door Cafe. We're excited to open our doors later this spring. Of the 299 employee ID cards that have been issued, it appears that 287 are active based on the data given in the meeting. That seems low in comparison to the number of business licenses that have been issued. How can it be that there are fewer employees than businesses? It is partially explained by the fact that principals or business owners are not included in this number. It also speaks to Vermont's focus on prioritizing small business. As a matter of fact, Tier 1 home occupancy licenses are technically not allowed to have employees because they are not required to undergo a fire safety inspection. Another contributing factor is that some businesses are licensed but not yet operational. We expect the employee numbers to increase as the market matures. For the first time, the CCB gave some demographic information on the workforce. 81% of workers have identified as white. 1% each identified as Asian, Black or African American, and American Indian or Alaska Native. The remaining 16% chose other or did not disclose. 49% of the workforce identifies as male, 36% as female, and 1% as non-binary. The balance did not disclose their gender. The average age is 38. As of February 21st, 1,564 product registration applications have been submitted. 422 have been approved. 645 are under review, and 246 are marked as incomplete. And finally, in February, the CCB closed 10 investigations or enforcement actions, and four others remain open. Each of these four are Category 1, the highest level of concern. Let's move now to our conversation with Carrie, 
to learn more about each of the four different categories of compliance. All right, Carrie Jagir, welcome back to the High Fidelity Podcast, and uh, welcome to the studio. Last time you were remote. Yeah, no, this is great. This is a great space, and uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's great to be back. Cool. So this is our second of three that we were planning, and when we met last time, which, gosh, I think it was like two months ago, we focused on the consumer protection piece, Mm -hmm. and you know, my idea for today was that we were going to kind of move on and talk a little bit more about supply chain management, some of the compliance issues that are there and inversion and diversion. But because we just recently had a consumer protection warning earlier this month and we did an episode about it and asked some questions, I was wondering whether you'd be open to talking about that a little bit because it's been almost, well, it's been like three weeks since it happened. and Absolutely. Absolutely. It's still an ongoing investigation, but there are things that we have learned and uh, directions we will be heading because of this. One of the things that we were curious about was the fact that the product in question that had allegedly made someone sick after they were smoking at the flower had originally, from the COA that was submitted at product registration, had shown positive at really low like trace levels of myoglobutanil. Mm-hmm. And so it appeared that it had passed the sample. But after the, the report and testing of the product afterwards, it was found to be higher. And so how does something like that happen? It's funny. How does it happen? How does it happen, mm-hmm. right? There is got to be some willful sort of intent to get a product to market. But we do have action levels for all of the contaminants, and that's listed in the guidance. And this level is protected. The level set for mycobutanil, which is the active ingredient in a fungicide commonly known as Eagle 20, is 0.2 parts per million. If you're below that, it's something that could easily move to market. Um, There's no regulatory stop if it's below an action level. And that's true of all drinking water contaminants when they test your water. If it's above an action level, there's a no drink order listed. If it's below it, then you're free to move on. And the levels that that are established are essentially, there's nothing allowed for use on cannabis, but these are levels that are protective of human health based on EPA's risk assessments. So a level of 0.2 or below 0.2 should alert the grower that something's amiss, something's amiss. And in this particular case, the grower didn't necessarily believe the lab report because this is a new industry. This is something new. It's a pesticide test. I don't know what, get a result back. I don't know what mycobutanol is. I don't use that when I grow. Where's it come from? It must be a mistake at the lab. So the original belief behind the grower was it was an anomaly right? and no idea where it came from. And then we did get receive a complaint where somebody wasn't feeling well after they consumed the product. Right. And that began a very in-depth investigation, a triage sort of a process of elimination of where this could have came from. Okay. So I guess my first question there, or I guess my second question, because <laughs> <laughs> my first question um, <laughs> Is, um, and not to make light of the situation, obviously, Mm. because whenever somebody gets sick, and that's why we have all these rules and regulations in place to try to prevent that from happening. And so, microbutanol is a banned substance to begin with. It is. So why is is there, Mm -hmm. if it shows up on a COA, even if it's at levels that are considered 
protective. Wouldn't that trigger kind of an investigation at the product registration level to begin with, to be like, what's happening here? Yeah, it should. It's yeah. a, it's a hey, what's going on? But the levels that we're looking at are so low that it could be drift. It could be something else. It could right. be you're getting your water from, you know, a surface water source. Gotcha. Um, the levels that are there are so low, and they're potential, potentially drift. The current sort of thinking is this came in on clones that were mailed from another state. So the clones that were dipped, that were grew out into mother plants and had clones cut off of those that produced product, we're still seeing the residual pesticide that's carried through uh, multiple generations of a plant. And right. we have had other growers that have had pesticide positives of these systemic pesticides who had clones from out of state that tested positive. The crop they planted from seed tested negative. So it's not like the product was used on site. Mm -hmm. So the the levels are set for all those pesticides where if they are showing up above those levels, we're asking questions. If they're not, it's we're we're living in a I mean this is horrible, but we are living in a chemical soup. You know, I managed the pesticide program for a number of years and we know there's ambient levels of pesticides in Lake Champlain. Right. And so yeah. those levels those levels exist in the environment. And right. this is sort of to cover growers who are operating appropriately but may have had drift from a neighboring farm. Right. No pesticide is best. We're looking for uh, none detect every COA. But there are allowable limits. But there are allowable limits. And yeah. and this was this was at our attention and why we're not gonna dismiss any complaint that comes in. But when someone comes in reporting symptoms and we went right to collect the sample from the leftover product that that individual had as well as samples of all the product at the individual dispenser that he purchased it from and then to the grower itself and all the other retail establishments where this was distributed, we've tested all of that product just to sort of get a handle on where this came from. So... As someone who used to oversee a lab, mm -hmm. that sounds expensive to me. <laughs> That's a lot of testing. It is a lot you of know? testing. I mean, how many? So when yeah. you have something like this, yeah. we have a concern. I mean, how many tests do you think that you actually ran in order to try to get to the bottom of this situation? Let me just say that this one individual grower were probably up to 30. But as this complaint came in, we received multiple other complaints about other growers potentially using this product and because we're going to respond to any complaint that right. comes in. So there's over 50 samples, um, but not all of them were from this one specific grower. There were multiple other growers that, that folks did complain about over the course of this uh, consumer protection, since this consumer protection huh. warning was issued, and we've sampled all of those as well. And luckily, those are all coming back clean. Right. Good. So let's go back a little bit to the point of the possibility that this all started from clones that were shipped here from out of state. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, technically, that's not legal, right? Because it's, Technically, yeah. that's not legal. Well... I mean, it happens. I mean, it's been Correct. happening for a long yes. time, for decades. Yep. It's one of the ways that people get their genetics. They mm -hmm. either get them from seed or from clones. Mm -hmm. um, and 
Sometimes it's in-state, which would so, be legal, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and sometimes it comes from out-of-state. So that's not – it's not surprising, but it's not great. It's not surprising. It's not great. And it's a gray area yeah. after DEA ha- came out with their statement oh, right. in the summer that uh, anything with THC below 0.3 is considered hemp. And seeds and clones for high THC cannabis fall in that category until they're flowering. Right. So – so while I we forgot do, about that. Yeah, so while we do want to, we do like this is encouraging us to sort of bookend that. Last year, the legislature eliminated the nursery license from the what the CCB had asked for. The nursery license is important. Nurseries in the state that are providing clean product to growers, I think, is a is a direction that we need to head. Yeah. So we will be asking for a nursery license and sort of keep our genetics in state. It'll help create the Vermont brand, but, I mean, what the CCB, what we were allowing to encourage folks into the market was we weren't going to look at where your seeds and clones came from the first year, and that was a hole in our system. Luckily, we caught it at the back end, but we weren't ensuring that nursery stock was clean. Right. That's something that we need to do. Yeah. We had the same thing back when the medical program started, is yeah. that they kind of just kind of looked the other way. Mm-hmm. Technically, I think the law said that we had to acquire our genetics through donation by a patient, mm-hmm. but where they got them, nobody was going to ask. Yeah. So similar things. But I, I didn't realize that we didn't have a nursery license. Um, mm-hmm. I had forgotten that piece in this new market. But cultivators are allowed to sell clones to retail stores for people mm-hmm. to buy yes. and grow at home. It's interesting that they yep. can't sell it to an Another grower. They could. They could essentially. But at that point, somebody who is a licensed grower is devoting a lot of their space to providing material to other licensed growers. And, I don't, you know, while you're taking a cut or two and providing them to folks home growing, I think if somebody ordered 100 or 1,000 yes. clones to flesh out a grow, like you're – decreasing the value of the space that you paid for to produce flour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think a nursery license will alleviate some of that. But you're right. They technically could. They technically could. And so the next piece that we were wondering about was it was reported during the investigation that not all of the products that this grower had out in the market had actually Mm -hmm. been approved through the registration process. Mm -hmm. And so... What happened there, and how does the registration process work? Yeah, our registration process is improving every day. And um, I know that we're taking a lot of comments or criticism for how slow the registration process is moving, but it is the cornerstone of the Consumer Protection Program. It's when we get to look at the label of the product, get to approve its packaging, get to approve its label. And if it's you know not flour, we look at all the other ingredients that are in that product. It, came down to a resource issue. We needed an interim system prior to the launch of the market for folks to be able to register product. That process was very cumbersome. We've streamlined that system, but what was happening is folks were submitting their registration with all their COAs, with their labeling, with their packaging, paying the fee, and then moving their product to the market without waiting for the registration process to happen. Right. And you know, the first ones we were able to do really quickly, but as that pile got bigger and bigger, the number of registrations that needed to be processed also grew, mm-hmm. and so the lag time grew. 
And so we're remedying that now. There's a statement up on the CCB website now about product registration and the fact that we're trying to clear that backlog by March 1st and tick all the boxes for the registration process and get those products approved. And, you know, shortly after we eat through the backlog, we're hoping to post a list on the website of all the products that have been registered. So, like, publicly or just for the operators to know whether they have the ability to... Both for both for retailers and for the general public. I don't know if the general public is going to care if a product's registered or not. <laughs> right. Some but, will. But. Some will, some won't. But generally for the retailers. Yeah. So they don't have to make a phone call. They don't have to. Right now it's current. They're, they're all asking for the registration documentation from the grower or manufacturer that the email basically that the CCB has sent back. The retailer is currently asking folks for those and we're getting a lot of call can you resend that email can you resend yes, that email? exactly which is fine that's that's a great way to do it and you know i think as the market matures this process will get smoother yeah mm-hmm. yeah so in this case just kind of to wrap that piece up too it was like that was one of our questions like kind of like what happened there how come mm-hmm. the retailer didn't know if it was registered mm-hmm. or the the cultivator and so it's just been a little bit Messy. Yeah, yep. <laughs> but everybody, we went to. I went to the product registration mm-hmm. meeting the other night. You know, people were a little bit grumpy about the fact that they felt mm-hmm. like they had done the right things, which it sounds mm-hmm. like most people are doing, and most I generally people. believe yep. that that's the case. I think yep. that most people who are operating the space right now are trying to follow yep. the rules and follow best practices and do all of that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the information is just not clear. So, what this brings up for me, in general, is just the CCB's bandwidth to mm-hmm. be able to audit all of the, the processes that they have to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the week as we were preparing for this conversation. And you reminded me that when the legalization bill first passed, mm-hmm. that the CCB actually, there was no budget to actually staff the CCB. That the beginning was just the board and an executive director. Yeah. And that all of the compliance stuff or everything underneath mm-hmm. them was actually going to be done by other agencies and state government. Mm-hmm. And I, after you said that, I thought about it. I was like, oh, God, I remember that. I remember reading that and being like, <laughs> how the heck are they going to do yeah. everything that they need to do? Yeah. Because even, again, in the medical market, there were only five licenses. Yeah. And technically, there were only three operators because mm-hmm. two of the operators, including us, had two licenses. And we even felt then that there wasn't really enough oversight of what we were doing. And mm-hmm. that's why we were kind of proactive about like, hey, this is, these are the things that we're running up against that are important. And so just realizing, wow, you're going to have unlimited licenses mm-hmm. in the beginning and thousands of products. So how are you going to manage that? And so I guess my first question on that is like, why does something like that happen? <laughs> is that just a function of state government where, where they're oh, wanting other God. agencies to get more work? Or is that because like the governor is not really pro-cannabis and they didn't really want to fund it? Or is it a combination of both? Like, it just seems kind of crazy that, yeah. I mean, how, what was it written? Who are the other agencies that, that were supposed to or are actively helping you right now do your functions? So, Bridget, you asked how it happened. And this is my personal opinion, and I had a sort of unique vantage point from the whole process. But 
every time the Senate tried to pass a bill, it got wrapped around some partic- in some committee or wrapped around something in the House, right? So the Senate tried to start with the foundation of a program and build the building from the foundation yeah. up. And every time they sent a bill that sort of had the foundation in place for a program to the House, it went to six different committees and never came out of those committees. Mm. So and they control the money, the House, it right? It doesn't... In terms of budgets or no? This was just passing the bill. Gotcha. Passing yeah. the bill. I'm not foolish enough to suggest any one chamber controls <laughs> money. Um, they both oversee the budget. Uh, money bills do start in the House. So the Senate had been trying for six years to get yeah. uh, legalization passed. And the sort of hang-ups were what didn't allow it to pass the House. They would be hung up in judiciary, hung up in GovOps, hung up here, hung up there on various little issues that were in the bill. They couldn't get over the foundational aspects, whether it was roadside testing or Advertising, Advertising, taxing, potency limits, all of those things. All of those things. So what the Senate did is they stripped down the bill, removed the foundation, and built the roof first. (laughs) And then sent it to the House, and there was nothing for the House to argue about. They could flesh out very, very little of that bill. Gotcha. And because it was such a slimmed-down bill, it had passed, and it essentially passed without support of the governor. Right. So who were the other agencies that are, and they are, I mean, there's like liquor and license, ag, what were they supposed to do? So essentially in the, in S-241, there were parts of the bill at the Department of Public Safety, agriculture, the health department, liquor and lottery. There was even talk of using the game wardens as the sort of inspection staff. Wow. All those discussions had it happened. Ag, we had a lab. We were going to do the laboratory piece. We were going to do some enforcement, the pesticide piece. Tax was going to oversee the sort of workings of the program. I don't remember when liquor and lottery got involved. That was under, there was a bill that was passed that, that asked the governor to establish a commission. And that was uh, Jake Perkinson and Tom Little, the commission that they chaired where liquor and lottery was introduced to do all the retail inspections. So it was going to be ag and liquor and lottery after the governor's commission came out with their report. Hmm. And so you are doing retail inspections now because since then you've, whatever, through different legislative initiatives, Mm -hmm. you've gotten funded to have staff. And you have to do that. Whenever you want to add staff, you have to, like, ask for it, right? But liquor's still involved. I mean, I was hearing one of the meetings Mm -hmm. where Dave Silberman, who's going to be on the show in a couple weeks, was talking about his displeasure of having Mm -hmm. them come in because they did a spot check. You know, I think they sent somebody into one of the the dispensaries or the retail stores to try to buy underage or something like that. But that's their job, right? It's in the law that they, that's one of the functions that they're going to do. So there's multiple layers of where liquor and lottery is involved. One of their roles is when we enforce administrative law. The control board enforces administrative law. If we find a licensee is operating in a criminal capacity, 
liquor and lottery are sworn officers and we would partner with liquor and lottery to do a criminal investigation or make a referral to liquor and lottery because they're sworn officers. And the governor's 10-point plan suggests that that's the way we go instead of calling the state police in to do some some of that work we use a liquor and lottery because they other sworn are other sworn officers but that's not where dave silberman's got concerns his concerns are that the paraphernalia that is sold you know for years you would go to a head shop and they'd be like you put your tobacco in here <laughs> right yeah so that created a situation where all of these products are tobacco paraphernalia or tobacco accoutrements. I can't remember the exact wording of the law. Yeah. But in order to sell pipes and vape cartridges and other smoking devices, you need a tobacco license. The Department of Liquor and Lottery is charged by the legislature to inspect. And by inspect, I mean try and have an underage person buy right. at a certain percentage of the liquor stores, but it's 100% of the tobacco licenses. So everybody who's got a retail store selling those things and has a tobacco license should expect them to be showing up at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So these other agencies, are they still integral or they've kind of, besides that one piece, I mean, now ag actually in the hemp program has moved underneath the CCB. Mm-hmm. So any of the functions that they might have been doing are now under your purview. Mm-hmm. I still don't understand how the Department of Health gets out of any of this stuff. That's another conversation. But yep. So the Department of Health is not out. They're the only one that really is in. And they're in because they receive funding to do their education and prevention program. So they do receive some of the Money received from the excise tax to run their their education their program. education program. Yes, yeah, yeah. Their, I I don't want to say don't use it program, but they're right. Yeah, yeah, I forget what it's called. Yeah, I don't know, but they don't have to. They're not assisting with um, inspections or anything like that no, in terms of facilities. No, they help write the health warning that's on all the product. The health department helped with that, but I think what you're getting at is the board hired their executive director and Bryn started looking at all the other agencies that she would be providing funding to to do the work and realized that the board under Bryn could could do it could do it more efficiently and for less money than the other state agencies were asking for to do the work right with less positions and and the board would maintain control of those programs and it wouldn't be sliced and diced. And yeah, I think it's nice to have it, it all is. under one it instead is. of different agencies having certain pieces of it. That seems really complicated. Yeah, I mean, the Colorado model is the boards of public health and the agency or the Department of Ag out there and the Department of Health and the Department of Public Safety are all trying to figure out who has... What responsibility. And, yeah. yeah, and it's parsed out and it doesn't doesn't work well. Right. I, don't want to condemn anybody else's program, but right. no, I know. <laughs> we're learning. But we're learning, right? <laughs> well, we're you learning. learn from what came before. Yeah. And so you've since added staff, which is great. Um, and this new consumer protection warning kind of spurred on the board to request funding to have your own lab. Mm-hmm. And so talk a little bit about why you want that. Yeah, I've mentioned my background a couple times. But the foundation, I ran, you know, about 20 
different regulatory programs for the agency of ag. And the foundation of all of those programs is the laboratory function. You can't really run a pesticide program without a lab. You can't run a feed and fertilizer program without a lab. Um, so the lab is the foundation for all of the regulatory work that happens. And it doesn't, it doesn't push out the commercial labs, but the lab provides you data to make regulatory decisions and guides the market and is integral to consumer protection. And that's sort of, that was one of the arguments, one of the arguments that won in the legislature why we wanted a regulator market for this consumer protection piece. Right. So right now, when you did all of this testing for mm. this incidence, you, you're contracted with BIA Diagnostics, one of the labs right now. They do all the testing for the state currently. So we use both labs. Oh, you do? Okay. We use both labs just because we didn't want to cut in front of any of their customers. Right. <laughs> they do have clients that they work closely with and and the lag time on there's, these results does exist. So BIA has been running pesticides all along. Steep Hill finished their method validation work for pesticide very recently. So we were able to, well, uh, you know, Steep Hill wasn't offering service right yet. So their lag time was a little shorter. So we did use the lab with a shorter line for a yeah. lot of the samples. <laughs> so having your own lab will, yeah. you, there's no line. <laughs> yeah, there's no line. Um, there's the consumer protection piece and, and pesticides are important. But also, you know, when we're talking about potency, there's no referee, like, there's no referee lab in the state. So if the retail folks have told, you know, the growers that they don't want to see any flower that's below 20%, well, you're going to shop around for a lab that's going to ensure your product is more than 20%. And unless we have a referee lab, the labs are, I mean, I'm not saying that our labs, the two labs we're working with are super professional, yes. but... But, but there's no standards, and they all have their own methods, and yes. they developed, and there's always yeah. going to be variance. That's the way yeah. it's been. It's the way it is in every other state. You send yeah. a, a, a similar sample out to 10 labs, you're mm -hmm. going to get slightly different results. You're hoping that they're all going to be within a tolerable range. Um, yeah. But, I mean, there has been instances in other states where whenever people shop around, mm -hmm. also, unfortunately, there's some bad actors sometimes where yeah. either on the lab side or on the licensee side, where they're either like, Yep. Paying for better yep. lab results or labs are giving better lab mm -hmm. results on purpose in order to attract business. I don't think that's happening here, but we're just saying it because yep. it happens in other states. And so are there more labs that are like kind of in the queue to come on? We've had an application for another lab since July. And, you know, I'm still waiting for them to reach out to let us know they've got their fire safety approval before we go do an inspection and then they'll go through their method validation process. The other licensees don't have like that step. You know, we do an initial inspection, but the, the labs go through a method validation process where we're looking at their QC, making sure their method detection level work is done. That you audit them too. Yeah. yeah. The labs have a extra audit step that, that the other licensees don't have. So it's a steeper climb. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the other benefit that having your own internal lab will be that you, and even just in terms of auditing the products that are in the supply chain, is that you're going to be able to control the custody of a sample from start mm -hmm. to finish. Yep. And why is that important, if you wouldn't mind kind of explaining that? Well, from its inception, like 
the program, we've always been saying trust but verify, trust but verify. Um, we will be pulling retail samples or cultivation samples at almost every inspection. And if something did go wrong or we did find a positive pesticide sample and it did make it to court, the state has would have had to proof have proof of chain of custody from that sample, from when we took the sample straight up through its analysis in order to sort of take an action that involves a legal-type solution. Right. Is it unusual for a state regulatory body, like a cannabis regulatory body, to have their own lab? Is this a unique situation, or do other... How do other states do it? So... How do other states do it is a very good question, and and it's a hodgepodge of how other states do it, but I'm not aware of any other state that does have a referee lab. I'm aware of many other states that want them. You know, this is reminiscent for me of 25 years ago when all the pesticide programs across the country were in a rush to build their own labs, and this is very similar to what was going on then. You build a program and then very quickly realize that you need a lab. Right, right. Yeah. And again, labs are expensive to run. You think a million dollars is going to be enough? All I can say is those numbers are pretty equivalent to what we proposed in S-241. Got it. And we said we could do it with three people and a certain amount of money then. I mean, it should, in theory, save you money from what you're doing now in terms of having to rely on other labs to do it. So it should be more efficient, both in terms of time, turnaround times, and cost. So Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you're going to get it? I'm not going to pretend I have a crystal ball for the (laughs) legislature. That's the most dangerous thing you can do. (laughs) I just thought I'd ask, (laughs) because it's an important piece. Um, So, all right. I know uh, Chair Pepper has been working really hard to convince the legislature that this is very important. Good. All right. So it sounds like things are on the right track. Again, when I look at, you know, some of the issues that this brings up, it just makes me think that you guys have a lot to oversee and manage. And it, it's, it's a big expectation for you to be able to, I don't want to say get it all right, (laughs) Um, but to, to catch everything. And I think that the timeline that the state gave you in order to get a program up and running was really tight and maybe unrealistic. And, you know, we're kind of in this process like, hey, you know, it doesn't sound great to say it. And again, it's happened in every other state, but there's learning curves here for everybody. Yeah. And it's going to yeah. take a while to like figure everything out um, and have everything working the way that you want it to. I guess kind of knowing that, you know, like what is the CCB prioritizing right now in terms of their compliance auditing? Mm. What are we prioritizing? You know, there's a little bit of a little bit of triage. And like I said, if we do get a complaint, I try and respond within 48 hours mm-hmm. for any complaint. So the complaints come to the front of the line. But right now we're working on sort of standardizing what a retail inspection looks like, what a cultivator inspection looks like, what a manufacturing inspection looks like. We've hired, a, very recently hired a, someone from the Department of Health that ran the food and lodging program, hoping he really has some insight on what some of these food producing right. establishments need to be looking for. 
but basically developing those sort of standards about what a routine inspection looks like. We know what an initial inspection looks like. We know what to look for when we go now, but we need to sort of standardize what that looks like. And that's sort of standardizing some of those processes and procedures are high on the list while we're responding to complaints and continuing to do. Good. Well, I'm just curious, you know, while we're wrapping it up here, in terms of like besides this one incidence, like what are the four categories that the state has in terms of looking at like levels of mm. compliance issues? And what have you kind of seen so far? You know, don't I don't need to know the businesses or anything like that, but what yeah. are examples of things that are coming up that you are catching right now? Believe it or not, our compliance staff, we have six people in, and, um, you know, exposure and knowing those faces is, is one way we're finding out about what's going on. But the other piece is this industry likes to let us know when other folks are, are not complying with the rules. Um, so we are seeing a lot of self-regulation within the licensees. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of self-regulation within the licensees. Um, and, you know, when we reach out to somebody about advertising, they let us know that all their other competitors, if you will, when they're doing things right and doing things wrong. So we're seeing a lot of licensing and packaging. That was early on. We're seeing diversion. We're seeing record-keeping issues. And a lot of sort of the cart before the horse with the product registration people, a lot of registered People submit their products into registration and then immediately move them to market. And that's something that I think we need to really get a handle on. Yeah. Has there been anything so far that has risen to the level of somebody losing their license potentially? In the last CCB meeting, there was like you guys gave some stats on the the different categories. It says there was two active enforcement actions for category one, Mm -hmm. which is the most egregious, right? It and is. and could yeah. potentially lead to that. And so mm-hmm. I mean what would be in that category anyways to begin with? <clears throat> so like diversion probably diversion, is one of them. Yeah. Maybe crossing. lying about a yeah. whatever. Diversion, something. lying to the board. Yeah. Um there's anything that would impact public health is also in, in category one. Right. And you know, the category one really captures the violations with intent. You you not only are violating the rule you meant to, right. you willfully violated the rule. Right. Um, category two is a lot of the same violations, but that you didn't know. Right. Inadvertent learning In, curve stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, three is where you're, you're looking at sort of paperwork or advertising type violations. Category one is like providing canvas to minors. Right. Type, you know, the, the stuff that the, the legislature was very keen on, not seeing happen. Right, right. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up here because of time. Mm-hmm. And I always appreciate your perspective. But I guess the last thing that I wanted to ask you is, you know, knowing that we are kind of in this, you know, you use the word triage. It's mm-hmm. like this is learning curve, getting yep. up to speed. Yep. You know, I think that Vermont, one of the things that I, that I like about um, how we proceeded here is that we kind of have taken that trust but verify. Um, it's a little bit more like educational instead of punitive, um, while at the same time trying to build a good infrastructure of auditing and things to ensure public safety. You know, when something like this happens, like the consumer uh, protection warning, uh, for people who don't have like kind of like the knowledge that, that we have about the industry and the fact that, you know, 
I believe that most actors are acting mm-hmm. in good faith and that most of the product out there is safe, but we are going to have these instances, unfortunately, happen every once in a while. What do you say to that new consumer mm. if they're concerned about shopping the market and all yeah. they know is like, hey, they see this warning and it scares them off? Because we don't want them. We want to bring more people yeah, into the market. We, That's we what we're trying to do. We do bring more people in. It was definitely a warning. And it also, it wasn't meant to cause fear. Right. But it was supposed to sort of allay concerns. In an unregulated market, that product would still be moving through channels of trade. Right. In a regulated market, we're able to stop it. And it's sort of, you know, where where do you want to get your product? Someplace that catches products that have been adulterated or contaminated or someplace that doesn't. It's sort of like, you know, we see the E. coli recalls on lettuce. Yes. You know, or you can buy your lettuce from a, somewhere else. You know, you're either in the regulated market or outside. Grow your own is the best, but... <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody can do that. Not everybody can do that. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, it comes down to like every other market. It's like mm-hmm. know, know your producers. Know you know, your that's producers, the best thing yeah. that you can do, you know, and there's a lot of great ones out there right now. And it's just educating yourself about who's growing the product or who's making the product. Just do your homework, yep. you know. Yeah, and you know, it I it wasn't meant to cause fear. It yeah. was meant to raise the level of awareness. And similar to any sort of product recall, we went big. We went big. We pulled all their products because we didn't know. Yeah. And I do think that was the right thing to do. <laughs> After testing, it was very few of their products that needed to be pulled. Right. But we needed to make sure this was off the shelf. Right. Mm-hmm. Great. All right, Carrie. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll uh, see you in season three. All right. All right. Take care. do it for this episode. Thanks go out to my creative crew at High Fidelity, Olaf Willoughby and Shane Lynn, and to the team at Syntax in Motion for producing this show. A special shout out to Will Davis, my sound engineer. Thanks to you for listening to us today. If you enjoy what you heard, subscribe on our website, hi5vt.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, like, share, rate, or leave a comment. You can request topics or interviews for our show by emailing us at bewell at hi5et.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, be well and have fun out there.